Mark has a very dystopian view of goodwill. <laughs> well, we all do, but some of us like that more than others. <laughs> That's true. Back to your murder podcast. <laughs> Hello, hello, and welcome to the Outpost Podcast. I'm Lacey, and today I've been joined by three circus people. Clowns. <laughs> one. Clown one, Mark. Clown two with the bigger shoes, Teresa. Clown three, Tom. Clown three, Tom. Here we are. Hello. Everyone, happy today. Yeah, mm. it is. I can see myself in your shoes, and I look like a rainbow. I know. It's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty special. All right, let's go ahead and just get started today with some community questions. So, Teresa, what do we have in the mailbag today? How close to finish do you like a project to be before you run a Kickstarter? Do you like to fund and then do a majority of the development, knowing what resources you'll have? Or do you prefer to complete it ahead of time? Why are you reading it in that voice? <laughs> yeah, that's... Who was that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, is this a role play? <laughs> Who should that be? You didn't see the cape? Guard. <laughs> so the question is, how far along do we want a project to be before we run a Kickstarter? Yes. Yeah. Funny you should ask. That's a good question because we do really enjoy community engagement as a big part of our campaigns. We like to do that with extraneous stuff moving forward, promotional content, additional content. We would like to have... By the time we reach Kickstarter, the actual thing that you're pledging for to be pretty well dialed. Unsettled has undergone quite a few changes during the development cycle. So anyone who just looked at the project loosely and fell in love with its heart and its intent and the feel of it will be getting that. Anyone that really, really, really dug into all the little nitty gritty of the playthrough and things like that, you will see a lot of changes. And that's because this had a very grueling development cycle where lots of things were discovered and evolutions were made. And we would like to be further in the process next time. What would be ideal? The process takes as long mm. as the process takes. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, yeah, unsettled. Because we don't relent and because we are protecting the investment of the backers, we continue to push as far as we can uh, because we are informed by what happened in the Kickstarter. And I think there's a piece of this where I think a lot of people say, well, I just want to buy a finished product that's been tested and approved and has reviews and they're glowing reviews. And I think that's very convenient. Um, what I find in reality as a creator or as creators, what I think our heart is, is to take it pretty far, 85% in the future, ask, like 80, 85%. and let the community actually inform our blind spots. Okay, there is not a designer in the world that does anything worthwhile on their own without information and feedback and uh, reflections from other humans, right? That's the whole point of doing something, is sharing it, right, in the world. And so... To answer the question, in the future, I think if I were to put a number on it, I'd put it right there at 85. However, there may be projects by Orange Nebula in the future where we're like, this is done and ready to ship and it's going to come to you. And I think we will have done a lot of that work up front. However, I do give a little bit of room 
for the people who maybe for the first time are seeing one of our projects, they actually get to tell us what they like and what they love and what they want. And in the case of Unsettled, I think there was some impact on what we learned from the community and what they want and what they were responding to that may be a little different than what we would have anticipated otherwise. And so we like to take that and pepper that into the game. And so I think that's been the case here. It wasn't so much the case with Vindication because we were learning everything from scratch. With Unsettled, it's been the case just because that's the way it went. It would be really easy to be pinned down with that. I think there are probably projects that we're working on that may deviate from that intentionally and greatly. There may be ones, like I said, that it's 100%. It's actually done. They're in the warehouse. Here's your opportunity to buy a copy. They are printed and ready to ship. Okay. There may also be one that we're like, this is where we're at. And to get where we need to go, here's kind of what we're trying to build, this kind of groundswell and maybe funding or something like that. What do you guys think? And we judge from the success of a crowdfund campaign, is this something that the community wants? And I think we may in the future do something more like that. When it comes to board games, I think 85 is probably in the right spot. That makes a ton of sense. Give us another. Yeah. So, okay, next one. So what's the best TV or movie that you've watched during lockdown? I hate the fact that lockdown was actually part of the question. (laughs) I know. And we all can understand exactly what that means. You're in solitary. Uh What show are you watching? Well, I've loved having Hamilton. I've listened to it a lot, a lot, a lot, but I'd never seen it. And so actually watching it for the first time, to be honest with you, I didn't even know that the song that comes from the king was sung by the king. I just thought it was a character that had a really messed up love story. And now as soon as I watched it and understood that that's the king of England singing that, everything made quite a bit more sense to me. Mm. But I've watched that many, many times now and uh, got my kids singing it. And that's been great for me during lockdown. That's amazing. I'm very excited to hear that. I don't watch very much TV, but I did watch Money Heist and I thought it was spectacular. It has a lot of mature content in it. However, I was blown away and it's got subtitles. It's all in Spanish and Mm -hmm. it's got subtitles. It's on Netflix and really cool story about just big high level strategy executing on this plan that there's so many contingencies for it really was just a joy to watch the relationships in that actually drew me in and i felt connected to all of the characters and that is very rare that they are believable and i'm wondering if the subtitles actually impacted me in that way like i was able to cut through the dialogue and actually get into the story and the facial expressions more because of that I know it's got a lot of praise, but that's one of the best I've ever seen, I think. I think for me, the only real show I've watched or paid attention to recently was it was a docu-series on the Tower of London on Amazon Prime. It was amazing. Like all the hidden things they mm. found, how to get the portocollis to go down, and they'd lowered it for the first time in over 100 years. The crown jewels are kept there, so you like actually got to hear the jeweler talk about them and how he cleans them. And how he can't clean them until like eight o'clock at night when everybody has left and he's locked in the tower all night by himself. And then he, at sunrise, rides the train home and pretends he hasn't been cleaning millions of dollars mm-hmm. of jewels. It was fascinating. That's a cool life. Uh-huh. Yeah. That is cool. I watch almost nothing. I did watch Chernobyl, 
which is a good length series for me because it's like five episodes. Mm-hmm. Wait, Chernobyl the <clears throat> play? The HBO show. Oh, okay. That was exceptionally good. That was very, very good. I mean, incredibly depressing. I want to read up a little bit on people's reactions to that show and the sets because I feel like I had this image in my head of what the Soviet Union operated like and looked like. And I feel like just my my instinct watching that show is this was probably really close. Mm-hmm. Like everything looks so distinctive and unique and the way that people were behaving and what was motivating them. Like I was expecting it to be a really heavy handed show just because of the subject matter. But what I found was it had a ton to say just in subtext and the way it contextualizes things. Like it was a very smart show. It was cool. I liked it a lot. I also watched Dunkirk. Well, I guess I'm just watching heavy things and I can't handle war movies. I used to be like a major history war buff, but since I've gotten older and I have a son and a daughter and like, I just can't stomach it anymore. I can't. I watch a war movie and everyone is either someone's dad or someone's kid and I just can't do it. But for some reason I watched that movie and it definitely is one of my favorite war movies. It's like an art house movie almost Mm. like Mm. the sound mix is really aggressive, which is, typical for Christopher Nolan movies. You can never hear what the heck people are saying, but it works in that context. And all the characters in it, like you don't get to connect with them. Like you'll just be with someone for a little bit and something tragic happens to them. And then you're with this other person and it messes with time in weird ways. And it just dehumanizes everyone in a way that's almost like a meta statement on Mm -hmm. war. Really good movie, if that interests anyone. That's awesome. Okay, next question. Now that you make games professionally... Are you able to still enjoy them? Do you still get excited or do you anticipate new games? I'll speak for myself. I don't find that I have a tremendous amount of time to play games. I actually, if I do it, I have to like schedule like the rental of a beach house and then bring some friends and go play games for a weekend and then not play them again for a while, especially with COVID. It's much harder to get people together. I also think that there's a difference for me in making and playing. I enjoy making more than I enjoy playing. And that's a hard like confession for me, but yeah, that's kind of where I am. I look at other games a little bit differently and I think it's cool because I can look at a game that is very successful or very renowned and look at it through a different lens. I think that a lot of people do and, and think, gosh, you know, there was such an opportunity here that was missed or I can look at a game that gets no praise or maybe gets, you know, three stars out of five and think about the brilliant thing that's in that game that really doesn't get credit because it didn't get as much, you know, visibility or the graphic design wasn't as strong as it could have been, those types of things. And so the perception is deepened and I learn a lot. Like when I look at games, I look at them differently now. I look at the architecture of them and I do get to play them sometimes, but not as much as I would like. I almost think like both this question and the one before is really highlighting the lack of balance that we have between creation and consumption. <laughs> it's like, what have I've you never been watched watching? anything? What have you been playing? It's like, we don't I don't, play, we don't watch. We work, we sleep, we work, we sleep. That's what I feel like. I think that's, that's like this podcast subheadline is just work, maybe sleep, work. Uh huh. It has definitely changed my gaming hobby. For sure. I feel like we had this question a few weeks ago, but 
the question before a few weeks ago was, do you judge games differently? Oh, and this okay. is yeah. asking about if like you actually get excited about playing still, if you get anticipatory okay. about games. Because I do judge games very differently now. I think about them differently, which influences my hobby, too. It's funny. When I saw that question, I, I thought about it because I used to get really excited about games. Mm -hmm. like, dude, when was the last time mm -hmm. I was really stoked about a game or how many am I actively excited about right now? And it is much less, but it does make it more fun when that happens. I have a theory that maybe because we've started to build a community, right? And we're plugged into the Outpost community, mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. excited about maybe deeper concepts and more bizarre things. Well, then we're getting our sense of belonging from that community. So we're not quite as plugged in to some of the other communities that you might have been plugged into before because your sense of belonging has kind of shifted somewhat. That's probably... Good observation. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's I like pretty that. accurate. Mm -hmm. I know for me, I'm not making games. And I came in from very different world. So I'm actually getting more excited just about games in general. Like I'm discovering this. So it's neat to kind of see what you guys are doing and see what is on the shelf that Mark wants to play and doesn't have friends for. <laughs> not that I have them so I can't say anything they'd stay on the shelf for me or too or Mark doesn't have friends for games I was going to say what did this come about me and my friends Mark doesn't have friends Mark has those two friends <laughs> the same two he's had since high school it's more friends than I have it's just, That's, my yeah. friends are you guys <laughs> I was going to say it's just Tom and Derek that's all I have do -do -do -do. how does your humor shape your creativity and what thing comic movie would you say defined your sense of humor and does it still make you laugh to this day? I mean, humor shapes everything that I do, definitely. This question came from Facebook and I saw this this morning and I thought about it for a while. And I was like, what are those things that shape your humor from childhood, I guess? So Calvin and Hobbes shaped almost everything about me. Like I remember basically learning to read, desperately trying to understand what was going on in Calvin and Hobbes. There's so much sophisticated worldview and humor and observation in Calvin and Hobbes. Like, that's going to be my number one go to for literally everything. There's also a book called The Phantom Tollbooth that I don't know if that was a big book or, but mm -mm. it, Never yeah, I remember it. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. It taught me a lot about wordplay because everything in that book is some strange pun or like sentences mean 12 different things. And I just remember being really blown away by that. And then honestly, there's a comedian named Eddie Izzard. I was going to say Eddie. Yes. <laughs> now I have to figure it out. I've never heard of this before. Eddie Izzard. I can bring you the DVD. I don't know if it's just that I was already primed for Eddie Izzard or if he completely primed me for the rest of my life, but he has this stream of consciousness mania that's a weird <laughs> mix of the most intelligent, insightful, smart, there's 15 things happening at once that you've ever heard, and just exuberant silliness all at once. It's like, I mean, if you know me at all and then you watch Dress to Kill, which is his best one, yep. like you will see me in Eddie Izzard okay. for sure. Now I'd have to. Yeah. No, I mean, see, Eddie Izzard, he has a history background. Mm -hmm. And so it shows because he just goes deep and he pulls out these obscure references and then builds it up. You now know and you'll never forget Hitler was a vegetarian. Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. And as soon as you watch this, you're going to be like, and here you go. You here's the. You, you will also pick up now on Teresa and I doing <laughs> lots of little Eddie Izzard jokes back and forth okay. that no one else in the office picks up on. Uh -huh. Do you have a um, flag? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, those are probably my three big things. Well, 
let me talk about one of my favorite types of humor, and then I'll talk about where I think some of my humor came from. So one of my favorite types of humor that will make me laugh every time is if you make a voice for a dog or an animal. Mm. Like animals talking. If someone pretends to be my pet or pretends to be a bird that I see flitting around, no question that will give me real belly laughs. You know? This is worldview homeward bound. <laughs> <laughs> As I was hearing you talk about some of what shaped your humor, let me not explain or give any rationale. SpongeBob SquarePants. Lacey, SpongeBob, right? You could put the two of us next to each other. We're walking to the Krusty Krab. We're encouraging people along the way, and we're total doofuses. Mm. Like, I feel like we could be cousins. You know what I mean? Me and SpongeBob. I've never actually seen SpongeBob. It was, I've seen, like, clips. When I was in middle school, it was very popular Nickelodeon medium. You know what I mean? That was what was on for an hour and a half after school. That was something I watched a lot of and my friends and I I know that it was huge and people give it credit for being remarkably strange. I think about SpongeBob. He's almost like Dory from Finding Nemo. Mm -hmm. So think about Dory and how she's a totally mindless but very good-natured and does things that everyone else thinks is ridiculous, but it usually has some sort of an actual purpose to it. That's so Dory, SpongeBob, Lacey, that's my humor. And I make a lot of jokes about bodily fluids. That works every time. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you just, if you yell excrement, people laugh. No, and it's, if you're a dog yelling it, oh my god, even better. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my humor and... I just think humor is so important. When we first started doing the concepts for Unsettled and talking about what did create group cohesion, what created trust between a group of people, I would creepily start watching groups of people and taking notes and analyzing like, okay, this group seems to be getting along and getting a lot of stuff done really well. What is it about them? And when they could laugh together, Mm -hmm. there was an instant bond that made them work better together. Let me get all my humor stuff out. When I study virality, like social media virality, Mm -hmm. I try to pretend I'm a mathematician and I can make up an equation for analyzing and forecasting content virality. And one huge factor in that is the presence of humor. So the presence of humor will amplify the virality of a post. I don't have exactly a number, but it always does. Is that amplified when the humor is unexpected or like contradictory to what's going on? Absolutely. Uh huh. Well, isn't the punchline just a surprise? Like the more it surprises you, the bigger the impact. Yes. Which is why a dog yelling excrement gets lacy every single time. It's so great. (laughs) (laughs) So I care a lot about humor. I think it's so important. I think it's important for group cohesion. And all my humor is excrement and animals and SpongeBob. It's hard to follow that. (laughs) but here goes i haven't really done this before reflected on my view of humor and then i think how it influences the work that we do i don't know i've always kind of grown up being fairly sarcastic i think everybody would agree i call it marcastic yeah marcasm sebastian maniscalco the comedian is probably really close to the one that i think is very close to my sense of humor if you're familiar with him, I think he's pretty funny. He's got a couple Netflix specials. A lighter good. version would be Jerry Seinfeld, mm-hmm. right? Everybody knows Jerry Seinfeld. There's something wholesome about Seinfeld's humor that I think is just everyday. Like he can take anything and make it funny. But my daughters are really into like sarcasm that's dark. 
right? Mm. And I find that hilarious, like dark humor. And I know Teresa's don't smiling and glinting right now. I don't even want to open that Pandora's box. <laughs> there's dark, they're going to skip. Teresa. <laughs> it's going to get to I me know. answering, and they're going to be like, next question. I know. We'll darkness, just take that answer for me and move on. like the sun compared to that. But yeah, my daughter's come up with stuff that is unbelievably funny and are drawn to that. I know they got it from my side, but I don't necessarily consider myself too deep in, in the humor side. But I will say, as it relates to work, humor is an amazing tool to make things more relatable and to break down barriers and to kind of make them more human. So I rely a lot on the team to come up with a lot of the things that we do that it kind of fuse our stuff with humor. I think it's really important to have a team do that because everybody's got kind of a different take on humor and it doesn't really. I know when I write posts, social media posts on my own that are jokes, nobody else gets it. You know, we got to have another pair of eyes. I don't like comedy movies. I can't think of one that I've ever watched that I like. I very rarely. They're not funny to me. I just, mm -hmm. I'm bored and I don't know. Mm. Maybe that says something about me. I have no idea, but they're not funny to me. Most of the movies that I think are funny are ridiculously tragic. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Teresa, like your Homeward turn. Bound. <laughs> if I'm talking Hold about on, when were I you, find... Were you done, Mark? Yeah, I was, you? That was no, it's okay. I don't know. I was just blabbering. A tragic tra transition oh. to <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> so strangely enough, I think my two things that I read and I'm always entertained by are Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by okay, Douglas yes. Adams. 1,000%. Yes. And then Catch-22. Like the dry sarcasm in there just would get me rolling. Just, it was, you don't see it coming, you don't see it coming, and then boom, and you're like, oh, and you could read it at face value and not catch the humor. Mm -hmm. That always just cracked me up. You can just send Teresa weird, dark things, and you just hear her laughing darkly <laughs> across the room. Like, I got to slack Teresa an image of a severed hand. And then, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just see, there hear, she goes. You hear that incredible. See, her humor is way too dark for me. When she shows me something like that, I'm like, I need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> go watch dog videos for like 30 minutes. Talk to me, dogs. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't share a lot. <laughs> I'll say, since Mark didn't really get to finish, one thing I loved about Mark's own humor is have you guys seen when he like really will commit to something? Like, we've been in line at a, at a restaurant restaurant or something before and he'll full-on commit not only an owl sound but also like an owl wing flap just in line there's people all around and he's like <laughs> you've heard his hooty hoo this is sound. a dream you had i don't know what you're talking about maybe it's because it was animals again but like whenever <laughs> whenever he does it's just so funny because he'll commit like nobody i've seen before in front of a whole crowd of people no problem i promise that will not be in our games what? Who do you? Owls. <laughs> Owls. It already screeching, is. Arms flapping. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, that's the, <laughs> the villain on Planet Nine. All right. Is that all in the mailbag? We have one more, but I could easily throw this for next week. I say let's do it. Let's, all right. let's go it. Go um, it. Let's, let's go do it. it. Let's go, go it. it. Go it. Let's do it. Go it. Make go. Much of the Outpost audience are board game fans brought here by two games. Okay. What would surprise fans about the business side of board games? So what are we not showing them? kind of deal we're not showing them the parts they don't want to see right a million dollars doesn't mean a million dollars actually that's funny that you said so desk tears. this morning i logged into board game geek and my little subscriptions section popped up for games that i follow and five of like seven notifications were for new threads about games and every single one of them 
was someone talking about either why is this game so expensive? Why are games so expensive? This company is ripping us off, blah, 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 blah. And I would say just based on that and seeing this regularly, that there is a very large misconception about the margins in board games, how much board game companies are actually making, how much of a million dollars actually goes into a company versus manufacturing and shipping and fulfillment and the margins are incredibly small in this industry. Think about it. This podcast we're hosting right now, the Facebook group that we host, every blog post to put out, we do all of that for free, which means that Vindication pays for that and Unsettled pays for that, right? All the work that we do that to put out content and build community mm-hmm. is done for free. So... It's not like those of you who are making money off of this game are actually making money off of this game. Let me let me speak. You to both that. are making eyes at me like I'm. Yeah, here's the reality: it's not free. The money being extracted out of the business every month is very real. You know, if you want to make money and be rich, you go buy real estate, or you be a doctor or an attorney, or you know those l- lucrative things. You don't dive into the board game industry because that's your goal. So there's a financial component to the answer to that, which is obvious to us. And probably there's some shallow depth perception, I think, which is a lot of folks who haven't had the immersion. It's like going into and telling somebody their job looks easy, whatever they're doing, it's probably way harder than you think. No job is easy. Right, exactly, exactly. So assumptions are abound in this industry. And that's not why we're here. If I'm really honest with you, this is not about money. This is about passion and we do this so that we can continue doing it and not because we want you know to arrive financially somewhere we're Maybe gonna that's ride the way trying to say very poorly <laughs> yeah no I, th- I think you did lead there yeah I- exactly so i mean right now this is basically our own time what i don't want people to think is oh so i i'm paying extra for vindication and extra for unsettled so they can make a podcast mm-hmm. i don't care about that i just want a game oh no it no. could be less expensive if you weren't making a podcast mm-hmm. and those are the type of conceptions that i think exist and would be inaccurate but what else is there about this business that would surprise people other than because of course you'd understand the financials of a business you've never been a part of but like Mm -hmm. as far as the board game industry unless you work in it what wouldn't you know it is so multidisciplinary that's a good to bring a product into the world you cannot do this by yourself now i can think of some examples where in my mind i'm thinking well that's pretty much one person it's not really ever one person even if there's one person at the head and it's a small company, maybe it's just a husband and wife or whatever. There's a lot of things that you can do by yourself, right? Like I designed Vindication by myself. I, you know, did those types of things, but there's a lot of hidden people in there that kind of helped make that happen. And quite honestly, I had to hire people to do illustrations because I'm not an illustrator. I had to hire, gosh, 30 different types of folks to help bring that into the world. And to go through a learning curve on each of those verticals, is steep. And I think that's why there's not a lot of people who are successful in any industry or tremendously successful is because they haven't gone through that trench of learning or they haven't been willing, or there's been too many things to stop them from getting to the end, too many excuses or fear Mm -hmm. or not having enough resources to make it happen. There's just a lot of barriers. And so I think our story is only passion 
will fuel you through those barriers over them, under them, through them, whatever it takes, because this is what we love. We talk about how much we work. Well, we work this much because we love it, not because we have to. It feels like we have to, but I don't think we really do. I think we just love it and we own it. We owe it to ourselves, right? Like this is our craft. And I said earlier, you know, we want to protect the investment of the backers. But I think the other side of that is we're really protecting our own reputation and we're holding ourselves accountable to ourselves for what we're doing. These are the conversations at least Tom and I have when we're talking about development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there are a lot of unsung heroes in the board game industry still. Graphic designers is a great example. I mean, there are a bunch of people working at Fantasy Flight making those games look like that that you've never heard of. Developers is another one that you don't hear very much or when you hear it sounds kind of nebulous. You know, the designer's name ends up on the box, but a lot of times with those bigger companies, at least not with us, we don't have in-house developers. The designers develop the games. But I read an interview the other day with a designer who's a known name. He said, well, I designed that game over a weekend and this game took me about a week and this game took me about a week. And he's talking about all these and this really well-known guy. And it sounds like he's a genius Mm -hmm. and he probably is. But what that description doesn't convey is that he designed a basic framework for a game handed it to a company and then a group of developers often one person at that company then slaved over that game perfecting and changing and evolving and balancing those mechanisms for a year and their name doesn't go on the box. It's the guy that had the original idea. So the designers are really unsung in this industry. And it's like that in all things. It's the books, movies, you know, like a director's name gets put on a movie, but it's the cinematographer that's making it stunning. And that's just kind of the way that it is. And that's not to shortchange designers because there's a genesis that starts with the designer. There's a spark of passion. But then it rolls through a whole bunch of other people along the way that are really invisible. Going and looking more at what people may not recognize about board games. And I say this only because I've I've watched Tom struggle through what looks like my personal hell would be logistics. Mm. And there is no way in heck I would want to trade roles for a moment when you're in that bucket. What's there's so much, there's so much pain here. I mean, <laughs> it's just my we're, pain. We're, we, sh- we should probably not go there. But like just to answer the question from that framework. Right. Yeah, the customer service alone answering emails and questions thousands and thousands of times that are probably unnecessary is a service that I think you provide because you care about the community, Mm -hmm. but has a tremendous monetary cost to a company, especially a small company. It's also expensive to your soul. I'm just going to put it out there. It really takes a lot. And were you talking about the logistics of like getting stuff places? Yeah, no, you. And the fact that there's a big darn world and every country has its own taxes and logistical Mm -hmm. postal nightmares and none of it is even remotely the same anywhere. And people in remote Siberia buy games and we have to figure out how to make that work. It's hard because you want to give as much as you can to people because especially with us, there's like, we want to be generous and we want to wow people. We want them to be excited. And then, you know, then we'll get an irate $28 for shipping to my country. And what they don't realize is it's actually costing us 35 to send it to that company or or you're already taking a hit on that or worse. We have shipped games at a tremendous loss. We've charged, you know, way less. And the reason for that is because you can't gauge actually what the shipping is until it's time to ship. And there are 
eight or nine carriers that are going to touch it into some of the remote areas of the world. And so at some point it actually leaves one company and goes to another company and they subcontract it out to another company. And then we've got an email on this side saying, where's my tracking number? And we're like, okay, I'll go through the chain and try to get that information for you, but we don't know. And, you know, the guy that was supposed to deliver it from this company that's subcontracted by this company, well, he was sick. And so this other guy took over and like, it's very, very difficult. It's not like, you know, Amazon Prime. It's like, here's your tracking number. It'll be there, you know, tomorrow afternoon. Albert's dropping it off at your front porch at two. <laughs> yeah. And quite honestly, I don't look at those type of things with a complaining type of a spirit. It's more like that is the work part of the job. And that's the thing that prevents other people from bringing amazing things into the world is because of the grind. Some people just don't want to do that. And we've decided that we love what we do enough that that we are willing to do that. As we get bigger, we're going to kind of try to get better at it and more efficient and, you know, those types of things. But yeah, there's just a lot of that. And I say those are the kind of the ugly bits, right? Like the stuff that I don't want to spend time talking about. Nobody went to talk about the ugly bits. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You ask about the unseen parts of the industry. It's all ugly. <laughs> it's really nasty. <laughs> yeah. Really gross. What, what makes it worth it, though, is the experiences that people get to have at the end, whether it's a game or a story or a book or whatever we're going to be doing, all these things, to know that we were able to share something and connect with other people and go through that trench and all the hardships to get to the point where there's an experience worth talking about, I think that makes it all worth it. And I think most things in life that are worth it are hard. One last thing that I think is something that might surprise people is just now that Vindication's been out in the world for how long? How long has Vindication been on people's tables? A couple of years. So like 17. We're starting to get more and more posts like somebody baked a cake, a Vindication themed cake for their husband and like yeah. made these custom icon things to go in it and and somebody made their own Vindication shirt and like the absolute giddiness and like fangirl attitude that we get when this has become part of somebody else's life you know yeah other people don't get to see the reaction that we have when we get a message they don't get to see the reaction that we have when we see the impact that the product is having in people's lives and there's really no way to properly convey what it's like to have something that you've made become part of someone else's life. There's no way to convey that. And that's, it's so huge. That's incredibly true. Especially when I think about young people, how meaningful and impactful things like Calvin and Hobbes were. And Calvin and Hobbes obviously was a big institution. Like everyone knows what Calvin and Hobbes is. But like the idea that there are kids in the world that are going to have grown up with Tuk Tuk or yes. Luna mm -hmm. as being like, something that they remember from their childhood in the way that I remember little toys or the Goonies or whatever mm -hmm. is really moving. Very. Mm -hmm. Like, there's really no way to convey it. It's this very unique feeling mm -hmm. internally. I would like to transition us into main topic. Beautiful. So today's main topic, we are talking about feeding the machine. The machine is you, okay? What are you feeding yourself right now? No, we're not talking about snacks. What are you feeding yourself um, in regards to information and inspiration that's helping you learn, helping you be inspired? What content are you ingesting in what form and what is it doing for you? 
this should probably ping pong around. I'm always reading a bunch of books and doing a bunch of masterclass and stuff. So if anyone gets bored, bring it back to me. I will start with, I am reading, or I think rereading Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. It focuses on these snap judgments that we make in life and how not only are they often your gut instinct will be more accurate and insightful than the conclusion that you reach if you spend a lot of time like really thinking through something, Mm -hmm. which is interesting in and of itself. But it also talks about how often when we think we've thought through something, we haven't. What we do is we have a snap judgment and then we spend a while rationalizing it with a bunch of thought, but all that thought is just our brain trying to piece together everything that we know and experiences we've had to coalesce around this decision you've already unconsciously made. The book is about focusing on how to control those snap judgments or improve those snap judgments since most of your decisions are, whether you believe it or realize it or not, snap judgments. And the like spoiler version is have more experiences, expose yourself to different types of thinking, different types of people, different ways of life, blah, blah, blah. The thing that's really standing out to me right now, though, is he has a number of examples of how we prime ourselves. And the examples are stunning. So a study that this group did where they had students come in one at a time, and they would do these word puzzles. And in some of the puzzles were a bunch of like aggressive, rude words. And then in the other group, the words were a little more kind. Okay. And then after they completed the puzzles, the students were supposed to go to the end of this hallway and go and meet with someone in this room and report that they had finished. But it is staged where someone is blocking that doorway, having a conversation with the person they're supposed to go and report to. Okay. And the idea was people who just read a bunch of rude words are now primed and they're going to be ruder. What they found was when they reached that door, the students who had just done the puzzle, that inc- and it's subtle, the inclusion of the rude words, so no one knew this is what was going on. People who read the rude words interrupted and said, hey, I'm here to report my thing within two or three minutes. The people who read the kinder puzzle never interrupted. They just oh, stood there in the hall data. and waited for like 15 minutes until they just stopped the thing. I've got three of these, so bear with me. The second one is they asked a bunch of students about being a soccer player and then they asked them trivial pursuit questions and they got like 40% of them right. Then they asked a group of students about what it would be like to be a professor when they're older. And then they asked them the exact same trivial pursuit questions and they got 56% right. Wow. So just thinking about being smart versus thinking about sports made people 16% smarter. Like, Mm. And then the one that really blew my mind was there was a graduate entrance exam that they gave to a couple hundred black students. And on half of them in the pre-exam questionnaire, they asked people to identify their race. And on half of them, that was omitted from the pre-exam questionnaire. And the students that weren't asked about their race got twice as many questions right. Wow. Just because of the associations that black students have with like academic achievement. And the fact that just being asked a question can make you perform 50% as well. So 
all the rest of the unconscious stuff aside from that book, the thing that's really impacting me right now is realizing how much what I take in affects what comes out. That's where I was going to go, actually. One of the observations I have from reading that book a couple of years ago was how much time we spend reinforcing our own biases and we justify it as, you know, research or mm. often we'll view it as being open-minded. I'm but guilty of Really, mm. all we're trying to do is justify our own biases. We come up with a snap judgment, we make a decision about it, and then we try to defend or create a logical argument for the decision. Yeah, or a series of them. And how self-focused that is was kind of where I took it. Mm -hmm. The question, though, the overall question that you asked, the way that I was viewing that, what we feed the machine, where I'm at in my life, I feed the machine a lot, but I'm very cognizant of what I'm not feeding the machine. I mean, it does kind of coincide, like kind of the view I have with my diet right now, my physical diet. I am inspired by a lot of different things and I read a lot of different books and I have found that watching entertainment does not feed the machine as much as it used to when I was younger, or at least that's what I thought it was doing before. Mm -hmm. Oh, I learn a lot from watching this series or this show. And what I found is like going into master classes and TED Talks and audiobooks and these types of things are much more challenging and stimulating than following a story. Yeah, like um, getting lost in story versus actually learning. Yeah, and furthermore, the negative effects that getting involved or feeding myself the wrong, I'll just use an example, politics right now, 30 seconds of any type of political thing on Facebook, for example, brings me down to the point where I have a very hard time being creative and inspired to create something. You know, the fact that negative headlines are so effective versus positive headlines and how that as a tool is used in our culture and outside of politics too, as an attention getting mechanism that is selfishly driven for the most part. Or at least fear driven. Well, yeah, but the motivation beyond that is to get- Get more eyes on your content. Yeah, and then to get people to reinforce your biases and your worldview. Right. Like those types of things I think are not constructive in the sense of like what Orange Nebula is trying to do. And that is, we are trying to tell stories and to build worlds where people have agency within them. They're not being led. They are being let loose in a space. And whether or not we actually accomplish that is, you know, conversation for another day, but that's at least what we're trying for. And so what I'm finding is for myself, I'm very mindful of what to shut out so that I can be effective. Mm. That's very much the conclusion I'm drawing from reading Blink is even when I do go and engage in things like discussions on Facebook or with people in my life or those sorts of things, if I have primed myself with positive, diverse ways of thinking, mm -hmm. diverse worldviews, different types of experiences, when I do go and engage on whatever level, I am bringing in those snap quick reactions that I have to everything based on what I've chosen not to regularly consume, what mm, I've not let in, right. I'm bringing more. Yes, I think of my mind like a harbor and I'm the harbor master, right? I get to become aware of what's taking 
harbor is that can you use the word that way what you know what's in the harbor of my mind and i get to be in charge of what is or isn't there and who gets a slip to stay at my harbor Mm -hmm. it's something i tell my daughter all the time is that you are at all times you are in complete control and you have control over what you do what somebody else does i mean that's a bigger how you take what somebody else does right and how you can help frame their next movement by how you respond Mm -hmm. And so you have all the control in any given moment. And piggybacking off what Tom and Mark have said is, I'm not doing a masterclass, I'm doing a great course, but it's on critical thinking as taught by a neurologist. And so it's how the brain works, how we construct arguments, and how we really understand. And if I'm able to like engage with that on a given day, I find how I respond to somebody, I'm not thinking, well, how could you be so silly to think that? I'm like, okay, what got them to that conclusion? Mm are there fallacies that they're unaware of? And then is there a way I can help try to to pull them up? Or is it better to just not answer the fool and let them be, you know? Speaking of the fool, sometimes I'm the fool. And I like to debate. You all have met my brother, Jared. He's a big debater. He likes to go through logical arguments, right? He and I will be discussing something back and forth and he'll go, okay, well, that's a fallacy because da 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 I would never debate Jared. And finally, (laughs) because it will be sport for him and I will be tired. I told him right away. (laughs) And we adore each other. You know what I mean? We have a lot of respect for each other. And so when he said something like that to me, I went like this. I looked at him and I go, listen, you can be right or you can be happy. So you can tell me why I'm wrong or you can ask me why I think what I think. And he goes, heard. And then, you know, Mm. and rewound it. I had another friend witness a fight between his parents and he found his mom being completely illogical and she left the room. And he says, why did you do that? We all know she was wrong. And he goes, well, son, I can be right or I can have dinner. Mm -hmm. And for him, it was just like, here's the decision. You know, like it makes sense to just allow that to happen and keep peace and, you know, love on that relationship and Mm -hmm. feed that. Being right is often not nearly as important as being caring. And and is there such a thing really? So like one of the things that, I have learned more and more so having a larger community. I'll use this example, designing a game for enjoyment for people who don't play the way that I play, right? So if you have a really aggressive player and you have a really kind of stoic, quiet, methodical player, they play very differently and I want them both to have a good experience, right? Well, at a larger scale, designing, creating, working, making for a huge diverse audience is the goal, right? And so the amount of talking goes way down and the amount of listening has to go up, I guess is my point. And when you're trying to feed the machine, I think it aligns very closely with what Tom was saying about Gladwell's Blink, and that is have more experiences and get more information from people who are not like you, Mm. right? You know, that means somebody way older than you, somebody way younger than you, not just ethnic lines. That's important, too. But I think sometimes it's just background or where you were born and where you were from and how you were raised and like people live in different parts of the world. And what's the culture like and how can we connect instead of living inside our little shallow box, our little bubble? And so when you feed the machine, I find that the more you can feed with other perspectives, your own perspective grows so immensely, sometimes actually even hard to perform because you can get overwhelmed very quickly. Mm -hmm. Like bringing other voices in is to just make sure you have blind spots checked, you know, like it's just like driving. If you know that you can't see very well because that 
side mirrors gone. You're going to need somebody to help, you know, spot check you. One of my favorite masterclasses I've watched so far is David Ceteris. And his books are hilariously funny if you've not read any of them. But what was really interesting about his approach to everything to me was that he's very unfocused on what he is making and incredibly focused on just observing curiously existence. Like he just talks to everyone and asks a million questions and listens. And he writes incredibly funny things that are almost all just observations stolen from others. Mm -hmm. What I've been doing a lot on that line to feed the machine lately is I've been really studying and trying to practice bringing just more presence mm. into my being, <laughs> you know? I've had lots of people who I love call me out on the fact that I move too fast and I have too many things going. And, you know, I've got so much distraction happening. And I've especially noticed it in myself as we've done more Zoom calls and meetings and less in-person meetings. You know, it's easier for me to be present and really listen and observe curiously when I'm around other human beings. And because I haven't had that as much lately, it's been harder for me to cultivate that. As I'm on a Zoom call, I'm doing eight other things, you know. So I've been just studying, studying, studying how I can just bring more presence into the moment that I'm in. And that presence looks like observation. Mm -hmm. It looks like listening. It looks like curiosity and openness. Isn't it called thin slicing in Blink? Mm -hmm. The way that you can thin slice and make that split decision accurately is if you are actually open and present. Because if you're not open and present, then you've got this background program running, which is going to significantly impact the choice that you're making. But if you are a little bit more present and clear, then you're going to be making better choices, more informed choices. Right. Well, and you bring up curiosity. And so in the same line as anything Markham Gladwell writes is, you know, the book Freakonomics and the author's name is blanket on me, but he takes a statement and he goes, well, instead of wondering how many teachers cheat on standardized testing, why don't more teachers like cheat? He just flips everything on its head and he goes, what would happen if this was worse? Mm -hmm. And then like analyzes it from that perspective. You know, he gets curious, he dives in and really explores it. From a different angle, from an unexpected angle. Right. And I think that helps stretch our brains and make sure that we're getting a full view of what things are. What are you reading right now? At this moment, I'm reading The Power of Now. It just talks a lot about bringing your presence into the moment that you're in. Being willing to do the uncommon thing of being quiet and doing nothing and the actual pleasure and satisfaction that can come from doing nothing because doing nothing is something when you're doing it now, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I try so hard in my life to validate myself through actions. Have I done enough to prove myself, to validate myself as worthy? And when I let myself just sit with nothingness, there's not that same battle for worthiness in the moment. Then that leads me to conversations in my own self about, you know, I have these two truths, right? One truth is I am immensely drawn towards having a significant positive impact on the world. You know, I want to make a difference. I want to have a voice that is helpful. And then on this other side, I know that I don't need to or have to do anything. And it's very hard for me to balance those two things mm -hmm. and be okay <laughs> at every moment. Does so that make sense? It does. How do you make the choice then? Because those are very polar things that have a lot of tension. Is it a choice? The way that I'm currently thinking about it is that everything that I'm doing, I'm remembering that I am choosing to do it. 
Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. I don't have to do anything that I'm doing. I'm doing it because I want to and because I can, as opposed to have to. How much are you finding that that impacts the way you approach those things? It makes it much more about how I can serve as opposed to what serves me, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm reading The Icarus Deception by Seth Godin. Almost done with it. It talks a lot about how our culture has shifted out of the industrialist age into one that actually favors the creative. However, how our culture lacks discipline and is set up for indulgence and the difference between those two. And I just kind of find myself reflecting as you guys are talking and I'm listening about how like my own personal journey and how discipline has played such a critical role in my life in the past 20 years versus the opportunity to be indulgent at the micro level, right? Not like binge watching a show for two days. I mean, I think that can be perfectly healthy in a bigger balance. I'm just talking about mindfulness about how we are choosing to feed the machine, but then also kind of be respectful of everyone else's machine. That's kind of where I'm at. All of Seth Godin's books are fantastic. Lynchpin is great. Icarus Deception is really focused on this concept that there's never been a better time to do what you're born for, but you have to overcome obstacles and you have to ignite your passion and overcome your fear and go do it because it's selfish to to not do so, right? It's, you know, oh, one of these days I'll do it, which was my story, or I don't have the resources or I don't have the time or it's too hard or it's too scary. And that just kind of makes the people who do it, it makes them scarce. And so that's why people pay for it, right? The scarcity creates demand, but I kind of feel like everybody can go do it. They just kind of need a little push, some of them. It's not just that they need a little push. I think they need the right motivation Mm. because everybody can do whatever it being successful really has to do with how connected they are to the heart, a motivation, a passion, I guess. I think a lot of it has to do with unlearning. And I guess the point for me is the truth is different than what we were taught. You know, when I was growing up, it was, you have a, a career for most of your life, you would have the same job. And at the end of it, you would retire and have this stability that comes with that and the safety that comes with replication and obedience and doing things like the manual told you to do. And how much of a drone you become or a clone that you actually shirk responsibility because if anybody asks you why something failed, you could be like, well, that's just what not I was my, told to do. It's not my job. Yeah. Well, this well, is the way just, we've always done it. This mm-hmm. is the way we've always done it. This is what I was told to do. And so you don't have any responsibility. So you have no risk. So you have no opportunity. And how narrow that is compared to what we have now, which requires a leap it's especially poignant for me because I am a personal embodiment of both of those realities, right? Like I lived believing the industrialist message, which isn't really as relevant these days. And I just was unhappy and I had a dead end job, dead end job that I was the owner of. (laughs) Like you were the, you were the construction worker that made that road. The business. You put the dead end sign on it. But I believed that my job was to give people what they wanted and not to give them what only I can make. I didn't even know the difference until I took the leap and I didn't know where I was gonna land. 
I don't feel like I've arrived. I'm just saying I'm in the air now, at least, right? Mm. And, and, I and can't, it's exhilarating. I up can't there. see the ground and I can't see the cliff I jumped off of. I'm just in the air, but I'm loving it. And mm -hmm. so that book really connects with me. And I feel like I just want to kind of evangelize that, right? Like this, you should follow your passion to the end, like, because there's never been a better time to do it. And you got to unlock that in yourself because nobody else will. One of the last times I heard you really dive into this type of topic, and it might have been when you first started the book again, you said the phrase, someday is another word for never. And that's been haunting me. And I don't think you knew that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you like to be haunted. So <laughs> <laughs> to quote Emily Dickinson, one need not to be a chamber to be haunted. Right. <laughs> yes, this just happened. This is our life. I love it. I don't know. I feel like I've expressed it, but I feel a little bit of regret that I didn't learn some of these things earlier. And I'm thankful for the Seth Godins of the world who are out there telling people the truth, which is, it's up to you. You have everything you need and people will make all kinds of excuses. I was one of them. Not enough money, not enough time, not ready, not prepared, not secure. Feels unsafe, feels uncomfortable. Well, yeah, that's how you know you're doing the right thing. And we talked recently, I think just last week, Tom and I were having a talk and I think somebody else was in there about the resistance that is the evidence that we're on the right path. When things start to go haywire and things, bad things start to happen and resistance comes to the thing you're trying to do, that's usually evidence that you are on the right path and that it's counterintuitive. And I have found that to be true, that things will kind of sometimes conspire against you or it feels like that. And what you find is that generates the strength to create the throughput if you focus. Well, one thing I hope comes across in these conversations to us too, and to anyone listening is I think we take for granted when we have talks about things like this, how much like we have all crossed the Rubicon or the threshold or whatever into where we do consciously feed the machine. Yes. Like mm -hmm. you can talk to anyone in this building about what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to, to grow? Yeah, it's and, not like a survival yeah. thing. It's a intentional growth and thing. And everyone is engaging with something that's expanding them or challenging them or growing them in some way. And I didn't do that a lot of my life. And it wasn't until I had some of these personal revelations that I had working in an industrialist system and because those things even today in the more greatest generation type of economy mindset like it still feels very legitimate and real when you're in it and it's easy to hear people talk about reading books and following your passion and listening to masterclass and all these things that we talk about and seem like, well, that's other people because they're in these other types of industries and it doesn't apply to my situation. It wasn't until I kind of made the decision to change the way I was thinking about things through lots and lots of failure at doing that and life sort of forcing me in that direction that I realized like there is growth available and unless you do make the decision to spend time consciously bringing in 
certain things like you are just going to kind of troll along in the exact same way i guess i'm kind of circling slowly mm -hmm. back to the malcolm gladwell thing again which i think what has made that book so ubiquitous in, in circles of people who read these kind of books mm -hmm. is that it is really universal to all these conversations that what you bring in is what comes out whether that's in relationships and loving language and caring like you bring in light you're going to give out light you bring in negativity, you're going to put out negativity. And that's in your own relationships, your job, your passions, whatever. And I think what happens when you prime yourself for something specific, if you are bringing in light, bringing in light, bringing in light, positivity, optimism, whatever you want to call it, when you ingest something that is not that, you actually transmute it, mm -hmm. right? You don't reflect it back because it's not alive inside you. So instead of that yuckiness growing roots within you, you change it into something else based on what's inside you. And you're in charge of what's inside you. Yeah. I, but I also think it's also very careful not to cross that threshold where you think I can transmute all of this and then you slowly start pushing it out to the point where you don't realize it. That's a good point. But I think what I was trying to say a few minutes ago and never really vocalized was like, we are all watching these things and listening to these things and doing these things and talking about them. And I think sometimes we maybe take it for granted that mm. we are at a point in our life where we have all realized the value of that. Mm -hmm. And if you're listening to this and you consume strictly entertainment, and again, nothing wrong with that. I love games. I love movies. I love books. I read right now. I'm also reading fantasy and science fiction books, and that's all wonderful. But like, if you've never actually taken the time to sit down and read a book by someone like Malcolm Gladwell or Seth Godin, try it. See how it starts influencing the way you think in your job. You don't have to leave your job, but you might find yourself behaving differently there. Mm -hmm. These things are empowering, mm -hmm. just like when you eat food that's nutritional, there's nutrients. This is like nutrients for your brain, right? And you always call it brain. I call it like soul. Well, you each have... Sorry, things. you're wrong. Um, <laughs> do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? <laughs> Both. Lacey just eats soul food. She just eats your soul. Hey, hey. Wait, hey, that's Teresa. Wait, yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, I was hurt by that. I was like, how dare that's you my role. mischaracterize? He's us. right, though. And I want to hear more of this. The podcast is framed it as machine. Yes. You're talking about nutrients. Like, continue with that thought. Again, I just kind of go to my own story because that's all I really know. I went through a lot of my life consuming and consuming for entertainment was a big part of that as I was getting older. And as I found later in life that I wanted to make more of myself, I started to do more empowering things and I started to be more disciplined and discipline has this negative rap. Like it's going to suck, right? Like it's just terrible. It's like exercise. It's like going to the gym. It's like all these chores and responsibilities. Well, that's true, but there's a joy side of discipline when you have something that has borne fruit or that has come out of your discipline that is like nothing else. It is the best high. Knowing that you did the hard work that only you could do, and now you not only get to benefit from it, but you get to share it with someone else and the joy that that gives for being generous. When you feed yourself, feed the machine something more nutritious than just consuming the fast food of entertainment. I was going to say, it's like ho-ho. Yeah. <laughs> Don't listen to ho-hos. Yeah, or ding-dongs. Or read hos <laughs> Don't listen to ding-dongs. Yeah. <laughs> this is weird because I don't want to put myself in a corner here talking about entertainment as fast food because I don't think that's always true. I think I'm actually very inspired 
by a lot of the things that I entertain myself with. Games is one of them. Mm. Movies, books, those types of things that we use to entertain ourselves can also be learning tools and they can be empowering. And some of them aren't. And I think we know when we're consuming them that like, I don't need this, right? Have you ever watched something or listened to something and be like, I really don't feel like this is for me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you kind of continue anyway because you're already in it or whatever. And I found myself more recently, I just don't have time for this. Like the opportunity cost is too high. I could be doing something amazing instead or listening to something that's, that I'm going to benefit from because everybody that I touch also benefits. This isn't just about me. This is about my machine and what it brings into the world and the engine that I have that other people rely on, you know, my friends and my family and my colleagues and coworkers and the community of Orange Nebula. I think being more mindful about that and reflecting on that is a lost piece in our culture. And I I think we're going to start to fan those flames. I used to describe lots of books and shows as being like, I think candy was the word I used Mm -hmm. a lot. Like, oh, it's just a candy book. Like, it's just, you know, like, it's fun, you know, whatever. If I'm reading a book, for the first time in my life, I'll stop reading a book. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll be a quarter of the way into it. And I realize, you know, this just, why? Yeah. You know, what's the, like, fine, I could read this and it would be entertaining, but it just isn't feeding me in any way, you know, and then I'll read something else. Like, I'm right. Sorry. It's okay. (laughs) I just have fart jokes. Like, let's say you eat well for like three weeks, right? Your gut bacteria, it takes time for your gut bacteria to change. Mm -hmm. And it changes based on what you tell us is going to be a scientific fart joke. It's going to take a lot of time to build up. So it's like when wow. you've been oh, when you've no. been training your gut microbes to be a certain way, when you eat something different, you end up totally gassy. It's a horrible experience. And you're like, I don't think I'm going to finish this. Yeah, I don't want to be gassy anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for um, Wait, my you fart guys jokes. get gassy that quickly? I've got to wait for a while. I have to like put <laughs> yeah, it down and right, then go that way. Keep going, circumstances. I love reading fantasy and science fiction books. Like right now, I, I'm reading the Broken Earth series by N.K. Jemisin. And... It's one of those things, it's like, yeah, this is a book for entertainment, but I'm also inspired by it because it's an inspired piece of creativity. Like in this one book, the book is written from first person perspective and second person perspective and third person perspective, depending on which character it is. Sometimes it's written from the perspective of a character. You don't even know who it is until later in the book and you slowly start putting it together And then that's never like a big aha, right about the time you start figuring it out, she just treats it like you always knew because she knows you're smart. Or these two characters are actually the same character at different points in time. It's inspiring because it's so creative, but it's also just for entertainment, but it's feeding me on multiple levels and it's not just junk food. Like I get the junk food experience of, I'm reading this for fun, but also it makes me think it stretches my brain it's going to make me a better writer it's so you can have multiple experiences with your entertainment that grow you and don't just entertain you it's a salad that you're getting in the drive through <sighs> yeah what's junk food for one person might not be junk food for another person that's a really too. good observation so yeah. i think that might be exactly what you need for empowerment in your thinking but for somebody else, it might not be. So, mm-hmm. I mean, again, that's why we kind of need to be more reflective. And It's just good for each of us as individuals to ask that question. Like, who cares whether other people say this is high literary value or whatever? Like, in yourself, as you're reading this, does it feel like this has value? Well, and Charles Dickens is now high lit. But at the time, it was just 
trash. Exactly. I'm triggered. I'm just going to go here. All right. So interjection. One of Seth Godin's points, which I agree with, is that the critics are always wrong. And I absolutely agree with him because no matter what the critics say, they're giving you a subjective opinion that is not true for everyone. And what's high literature for some person is not high literature for somebody else. So don't try to sell it to me. Right. Like (laughs) you can connect. Right. Lacey, you'd be like, don't tell me what I think. Yeah. Right. Don't tell me who I am or what. Don't make that mistake. Don't tell me what I am. Even if you say you look happy today, just ask me. Yeah. You get to make those decisions (laughs) yourself. I'm afraid you should be, you know, and it's something that we need to be mindful of, too, because I think we categorize four people, I think, in that can sometimes be a mistake rather than just kind of offering it out. That's my trigger. Sorry. I sense that we've rambled long enough. How about you all? Well, we've certainly rambled. It's all brilliant. Except the stuff that was cut. Except for the fart <laughs> jokes. Yeah, the that, fart jokes were great. Gonna have know to get joke. That was a the fart observation. Yeah. Thank you. Fartsvervation. Okay. I, I knew you were going to try that, that one. one. <laughs> wow. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She pushed too hard on that one. I know. It oh, hurt. my God. <laughs> Again. Now I agree. We're done. Yeah. Where's the Laffy Taffy? <laughs> all right. If you have not heard enough from us, even after this long rambling, there are a lot rambling, rambling. There are a lot of mm. other ways that you can hear from us. Teresa, where can you find us other than here? We are on the World Wide Web at orangenebula.com. We exist on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. She's doing the, the voices. Voice. Even the voices today. <laughs> wow. Uh, is Teresa still here? Yeah. This is what you You can today. find us on the internet. <laughs> no. What are you selling me? Come on down to the World Wide Web. At Orange Nebula on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Boom. And we've got a couple of Facebook groups. Goops. Even. Goops on Facebook. Stop Goops. <laughs> try really hard to we've got the outpost down. community group we've got the unsettled, unsettled group and vindication beautiful you can find us on board game geek and sign up for our newsletter yeah my gosh find us on youtube do these things all right that's my enough. gosh thank you for your time today thank <laughs> you three for hanging out today this was fun i enjoyed being around you good conversation bam <gasps> All right, we will talk to you soon. Have a wonderful day, evening. Goodbye, 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 goodbye. We didn't what? ask for you to, to play with the for, things you were the listening to. Bodied men. Coming out of you? Yes. Oh, I don't. Yes, Tom, there are disembodied men coming out of me. <laughs> and he can't help it.